This is Aider and a Better. My name is Avi Singh. I am here with Sajid Khan. Sajid, what up? What up, Avi? On this episode, we're, we're going to talk about a decision by the Union County Sheriff. That's a sheriff's office in North Carolina to charge a woman named Deja Lee with involuntary manslaughter. The case where a woman was driving on a road and got swept up in the floodwaters in the course of the events, tragically lost her one-year-old son literally slipping out of her fingertips. You know, how do we process these tragic events through the criminal justice system? So that's what we're going to talk about today. Sajid, did you hear about this event during the flooding? Do you remember reading about it or anything like that? No, I mean, you alerted me to it via a Twitter message and just alerting me to this tragic incident where this woman, Deja Lee, loses her son. I think the initial article or there was initial coverage of it was the fact that she lost her son in this really tragic way. Then news came out that the local law enforcement authorities have decided to charge her with involuntary manslaughter of her own child. The story took a even more dark and tragic turn from what it was initially being reported as. For a recap, you already recapped it a little bit. Deja Lee was driving in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. Lawrence had laid wreckage to this area. Um, apparently the weather settled for the day and Miss Lee was on en route to go visit her grandmother. Miss Lee is a single 20-year-old African-American mother who was the sole caretaker of her son. They're driving on this North Carolina road. Uh, there are some road barriers that seemingly, from, from all accounts, seem like they were partially in place but not completely in place to block off a particular road. She reports that she saw other cars coming out of those barriers and so decided to drive down this particular road. Her vehicle was swept up in this massive flood that apparently that was located on this road and before she knows it her car is submerged in water and she is trying to unbuckle her son, one-year-old son, from the back car seat, uh, at the same time trying to get herself out of her seatbelt. Um, and as she's trying to climb through a window or climb through an open door, as the water is submerging them, she loses grip of her child and then is unable to hold on to him. And next thing she knows is that She's in the hospital getting treated for flood-related uh, injuries and uh, suffering that she was enduring. And the local authorities uh, locate the baby's body on the street between a car and, and some other object. And, and so she's devastated, and we're all devastated for that type of uh, tragic loss. Uh, the local authorities there had decided to charge Miss Lee with involuntary manslaughter of her son for negligently causing the death of her baby. We are not practitioners in North Carolina. The conversation's about larger principles of justice. For the sake of the conversation, the charge that has been placed on her, and she's going to court according to news reports on November 20th, in Union County, North Carolina, uh, is called involuntary manslaughter. In North Carolina, that's defined as the unintentional killing of a person without express malice or implied malice. Express malice means, like, I intend to kill. Implied malice could be, I'm going to do something very, very dangerous, knowing that it could result in somebody being killed, and I do it anyway. By some unlawful act, not amounting to a felony, or naturally dangerous to human life, or by an act or omission constituting culpable negligence. Culpable negligence is what they're they're talking about. That's the charge of involuntary manslaughter. When the news reports came out about the flood and what happened to this woman and her child, 
I was reading those stories and really felt so sad and heartbroken for this person and what she went through. You know, the decisions that people make that might seem straightforward in, you know, in the moment, all of a sudden turning the situation, getting swept up in water, holding on to her child is the last, you know, last thing you just think about how much suffering a human can endure. You know, how much, how much harm can a person endure? What she went through, I, I don't know that there's more suffering. It's all tragic, but this is, this is one where there's no question she's, she's looking at herself and her decisions and the timing and everything right. and, and wondering what, you know, wondering what she could have done, uh, you know, and how she could have held on. Like, that's the way it reads, where you, she's, the child's in your grasp. Yeah, so she, I, I mean, the, the article reads, she'd been holding Kate into her chest, but now she was only holding onto his forearm. The waters whooshed by with surprising force pulling him away. She had his wrist, then his hand, then his fingers, then he was gone. You know, you read that, and we're both fathers of young children, and we strap our kids into into their car seats every day. We give them baths. We engage with them in various daily routine activities, and imagining that one of those daily routine drives or one of those daily baths or something like that could take this dark, twisted turn where... All of a sudden, uh, they're gone, and then taking on some sort of feeling of guilt or responsibility that, you know, had I not taken that turn, this wouldn't have happened. The the guilt and the remorse that a parent um, has to live with is indescribable. I, I can't imagine that pain. I, I I hear what you're saying is that the first reaction is just this sadness, this this empathy, but then it turned into outrage for me when you sent me the link of the fact that the local uh, law enforcement authorities there in the Charlotte area had decided to charge Miss Lee with this crime. And so it started to get me thinking about essentially our addiction to the criminal justice system as our means and method of dealing with negative or uh, difficult or traumatic things that happen in our community. Like it seems as if we don't know anything but criminal court. We don't have a mechanism or a methodology or an instinct in our bones besides turning to the criminal justice system yeah. when, when things go wrong. This case doesn't belong in a criminal court. She is not a criminal. The criminal justice system cannot do anything to restore Caden or to bring him any more justice than what is has already occurred and there is nothing that can be gained from criminally prosecuting this woman in terms of deterring her from any future criminal act, alleged criminal activity or deterring any sort of community member from any sort of uh, negligent or reckless behaviors whatever we want to call it it's just so troubling that the law enforcement authorities decided to prosecute her and it's not unusual. There are so many scenarios in our country where we, we just resort back to the criminal justice system of arrests and incarceration and convictions as our only response to things when they go wrong. When people are thinking about why we punish or why we use the criminal justice system, when I talk to law students about these types of issues, they'll often say, well, you know, the deterrence and the incapacitation and the rehabilitation. Right. I think that that's a useful framework for thinking about how the system 
can operate under some circumstances. And there's no question that none of those purported values have any play in a case like this. It doesn't send a message to people to not drive on partially blocked roads any more than the tragedy itself. Right. And putting a manslaughter conviction on this woman who lost her child, it doesn't make her life any better. It, it doesn't heal her or her family in any way. And we talk often about victims and offenders. The way victims are defined in California and in other states where there's laws about victims' rights, the, the person harmed or their immediate family members. Right. No one suggests that this is a willful act. You know, No one suggests that this was something done on purpose. Even the sheriff of Union County described it as a accident. He said that the tragic death of the child and the circumstances of this case are heartbreaking. That's a person called Eddie Cathy, the sheriff of Union County. No one believes that she shouldn't be treated with compassion. What are we doing? And and that's something that we have to be pushing for as people who are in the criminal justice world, uh, you know, in courtrooms and talking about the criminal justice system is, what are we doing when we use this thing? Is it a reflexive use? Is it because we don't have any other tools for healing people or dealing with trauma uh, that we just say, let's, let's just fit her through a courtroom. Even though there is no question that in this case, this is not a hard case, right? This is not a hard case. This is a case where there's no question it does nothing but harm to do this to her and her family. Right. It's just emblematic to me of our, uh, of our bloated mass incarceration machine and our bloated criminal justice system. And it reminds me of the countless number of, not to say that Deja Lee is, a, is comparable to a drug addict, but a, the countless number of, of people that have been swept up in our criminal justice system because of drug addiction, the corresponding mental health issues that might have rooted, that result in those drug addictions. Like this use of the criminal justice system to deal with problems that are outside the boundaries of what criminal courts should be dealing with when we're uh, talking about health crises like drug addiction or mental health, mental illness when we're dealing with someone who may, who had an accident the criminal justice system should not be the catch-all for everything that can or does go wrong in our society but that's the way we use it our instinct is to arrest our instinct is to bring folks into our criminal courts to charge them with something and we somehow feel a salve when that person has been convicted of something that conviction is a remedy to this tragedy that it's not they're not related ultimately if miss lee is convicted of something it's like you said earlier it serves no purpose to either restore her uh, to make her whole to bring justice to Caden, or to make the community any any safer so it really serves no no benefit part of the conversation could be about her potentially being convicted there's a potential that that could happen it's not a certainty but there's a certainty that she's been charged and will now be processed through this ugly system you know, there's a certainty that she will have to give up some aspects of her liberty. There's a certainty she's going to have to get an attorney, which I understand she already has gotten, or that she will have to go to court dates where she has to process the trauma that she experienced through judges and metal detectors and prosecutors. All of that is harmful and is an area where we should exercise extreme restraint. Yeah. But we don't, because of what you talked about, the reflexive kind of we don't have any other tools. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, as you talk about that, I, I, I think about the human tax and the human cost that our process imposes on, on someone that is put through it. 
there is such trauma that is involved with having to show up to court even just showing up to court on a misdemeanor matter, you know, having yourself feel in the crosshairs of a judge, of a prosecutor, having to miss work or miss out on family time for that court appearance. The trauma that is involved with even spending an hour in booking, getting fingerprinted and, and having a mugshot taken, or the trauma of sitting in jail for a, a night until until a family member can post bail. The trauma of, of if you can't post bail and, and you're sitting in a courtroom getting arraigned uh, in shackles, let alone the trauma that could be involved with ultimately going through a trial or having to endure uh, making decisions about a plea bargain, getting convicted of something and the trauma of having to deal with the aftermath of those convictions, whether it be a misdemeanor or a felony in terms of its impact on benefits and voting rights and housing and getting a job, all those things. I mean, the, the, the litany of trauma that we impose on the people through the means of our criminal justice system is really hard to quantify. And I don't think we really recognize it until we take a moment to kind of put ourselves into those shoes. You think of that and then you layer that on top of what Miss Lee is already suffering. I mean, I can't imagine her being able to sleep with the thought of what happened to her with her son. What are we what are we doing to this woman when law enforcement, when you read some of these quotes as to why law enforcement thinks this was the right thing to do to charge her, I don't think they really recognize this tax or cost that we're talking about. And, you know, there's a weird flip side to it. We're talking about how significant the criminal prosecution is, but then at the same time, how insignificant it is relative to what she's been through. When you have a person who's had a tremendous loss, they might just show up and give kind of give in whatever blame society is prepared to place on the person. They're placing that blame on themselves significantly more. Yeah. You don't need to tell a parent like this person, given what she's described and what she went through, that her actions were unfortunate. Right. Uh, you can see people show up and really feel no hope when they've been through this type of tragic loss when they show up in a, in a criminal case and they just want to give in. Give me the whatever it is. Give me the max. Yeah. This incident, especially from a parent's perspective, took Miss Lee's soul, like a, at least a like a large piece of her soul I can imagine I mean I can imagine I you know I cringe at the thought of losing one of our you know one of our children and then here comes law enforcement and our system of criminal justice seeking to get that extra pound of flesh you know like that extra like it's so it's so cruel when you think about it and as I mentioned earlier ultimately if the prosecutors in that area are seeking conviction what does that conviction come with to for her you know what ultimately does that conviction cause her in terms of her ability to be a law-abiding community member in her in her area and so it is it is cruel and it is unusual and it's not necessary especially given the, the discretion that prosecutors offices have to make these decisions there is no auto button that says that when a particular incident happens even if there is a way to attribute criminality to it there is nothing that says that a, a da's office has to prosecute and you sent me a link to a santa clara county uh, memo uh, involving death of a three-year-old boy who shot himself in July of 2012 with a firearm of his father's, who was an, who was a police officer. And ultimately, the DA's office in our county decided not to prosecute the father for the death of his three-year-old child. And what the DA's office said in their memo was the consequences of Orlando's mistaken judgment resulted in the death of his son. A family has been forever changed. There is no court-ordered punishment that could rival the degree of loss he and his family have suffered. So I read that memo, and I applaud the DA's office here for affording that type of empathy 
and that type of understanding. But I struggle to understand why Miss Lee is not afforded the same type of empathy and understanding. But then I don't struggle very much because I recognize that there are factors at play. The officer Orlando in the case that I described is a San Jose police officer. He's a sworn officer and we obviously as, as a society give deference to our officers and honor and respect what they do. Conversely, when we're talking about Miss Lee, we're talking about a 20-year-old African-American single mother. It's not a far stretch to think that race and gender are at play when a local law enforcement is deciding whether to prosecute somebody. If this had been a 35-year-old a white doting mother of three in North Carolina from perhaps a more affluent area of, of Charlotte, maybe law enforcement there would be more deferential, more empathetic. You know, of course, we, we don't know, we don't have the controlled hypotheticals, but there's a serious concern about what we do to people when it's very reasonable and hard to argue with the idea that the police officers would consider factors that are absolutely in play, right? The idea that, you know, the NAACP is involved in this case saying, how does race play a role in the prosecution of Miss Lee? And you can't dismiss it out of hand because we know that a person's ability to empathize can sometimes be limited by difference. Right. Difference can be, oh, well, this person is not like me. This person is young and not a good decision maker because of her youth. Right. right? When I was reading the Washington Post article, it was loaded with all these you know, interesting facts about her, about how the birth of her child was a significant influence on her, uh, the type of work she did. And there are all these factors that shouldn't really matter to anything, but they're obvious things that you do when you're telling someone's story in order to get people to relate, right? right? That she works at Amazon and she lifts a lot of stuff. People look at her as a hard worker. That shouldn't matter to whether she should be criminally prosecuted, but these facts must be loaded in to tell her story, Mm -hmm. to get people to empathize, right? Yeah, and I just think about, like I said earlier, about about prosecutorial discretion and it's not to to make any claim that that anyone's affirmatively racist it's the idea of uh, subconscious biases coming into play or like you're referencing how far or how willing we are to empathize with people that don't look like us that maybe live in different circles as us, uh, you know, uh, may live in different areas, may come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. It's it's hard to ignore the history of this country where uh, our country is has a dark history and present of disproportionately prosecuting African-American men and women for crimes. And, all, and, the, and it all makes you think of these parts of the country where they're kind of going after small, petty crimes so that bigger crimes aren't let go. Like a broken windows. Broken theory. windows yeah. policy, yeah. So like in those in those scenarios where there's so much discretion that's afforded to prosecution and law enforcement, and then ultimately it falls on the backs of people of color and particularly black men and women. And so it's hard to ignore the role of race here. Oh, and I don't think we should, especially because we're, we're left with our hands up right. saying, how is it possible that this person's being charged with a crime? Right. We're, we're, we're left with no understanding of why this is happening. Yeah. Right. No understanding from a justice perspective why this would happen. Right. Right. Understanding that what's happening to this person is cruel and wrong. And then we're asking ourselves, why would that happen? Right. Why would this happen to Deja Lee? What are the possible reasons yeah. that this would happen to Deja Lee? You know, the uh, the law makes a lot of room for judgment calls and empathy to slip in. There was a story I read some time ago about uh, how parents are subject to prosecution for leaving their kids in the car. Mm-hmm. And 
what uh, studies have found is that the more significant factor is not the actual risk that the child is exposed to, but subjective perceptions about the parent and what they're involved in. Hmm. So for example, when a mom leaves a kid in a car for five minutes, that's more dangerous than when a dad leaves a kid in the car for five minutes because people judging think, well, you know, that mom shouldn't be doing it more so than the dad. They should be more doting or they should be more present. They have more special obligations. Right. So this results in discrimination against women. And what you're doing... Yeah, I was going to say what you're so, doing. Yeah. So the, the mom who parks the car and, and runs in to grab a latte is the most dangerous person in town, whereas the mom who parks the car and does something like buys school supplies, right, right, expose their child to less risk. Yeah. Of course, that's ridiculous. Whatever the risk is associated with five minutes sitting in a car is the same. You know, whether it's getting a latte or getting a textbooks. There's ways that our ideas and our value judgments kind of play into questions about dangerousness that come into play with cases like this, right? <laughs> so in this case, if Miss uh, Lee is being prosecuted and ultimately being tried for these charges, they have to prove uh, what I called earlier is culpable negligence, that her act constituted culpable negligence. And in North Carolina, there's a difference uh, between culpable negligence, which is the thing that gets you criminal liability, and ordinary negligence, which can get you into a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And culpable negligence is defined as such recklessness or carelessness proximately resulting in injury or death as imports a thoughtless disregard of consequences or heedless indifference to the safety and rights of others. Absolutely not. No <laughs> right. fucking way. <laughs> right. Okay? Yeah. No way. There's no way. No way. Okay? No. I'm so pissed about this. That's the standard. That's what has to be proven. The question, the way they're getting a prosecution of this person is through culpable negligence. Now, did she do something, just to talk for a minute, did she do something that was so reckless or careless that it should import thoughtless disregard to consequences or heedless indifference? She drove on a road, and she says that she, as she was approaching the road, she saw cones on kind of either side of the road, right? and she saw cars coming in her direction from right. where she was about to go. Right. She's driving her son to visit her grandmother she on, a, on a on a non-rainy day. Light rain at the end of the storm. Yeah. She made a mistake. Right. Okay, she made a mistake. It was an awful, terrible mistake in terms of consequences, but it doesn't rise to the level. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, should she be prosecuted even if they can prove it? That's what they have to prove. Right. I'm not a North Carolina attorney, but that's what they have to prove. You should get a... Uh like you should pro hoc vice yeah whatever the word is to to get uh barred into north yeah. carolina go try the case for miss uh miss lee and then i challenge you to cuss on the in your closing argument you have the miss lee has the full support of of <laughs> the of Adrian or, or better. better you have the full support of amicus counsel yes we will um we'll just uh submit this to some sort of transcript and we'll send it as an amicus and, and then i'll be quickly sanctioned <laughs> i have uh, yeah yeah we'll be quickly thrown out of uh out of union county Look, they, they are understanding. The people who are, have submitted these charges understand how tragic this is. Right. And they don't have to do what they're doing. They have discretion to not do it. And there's a real question about whether it should be done legally. Yeah. Well, that I mean, the you reading that instruction, I actually hadn't... I mean, I know you had sent some of this material to me before, but you reading that out loud and then me processing it makes it even more apparent 
that the subconscious biases are at play because they're really stretching to take what happened to Miss Lee and to her son and trying to fit it into this this uh, definition that you just read to me is emblematic again of discretion gone wrong and it's discretion that is subconsciously rooted in perceptions of race socioeconomic backgrounds and gender uh, like that you described earlier all those things are at play here because law enforcement is taking such an attenuated uh, road to try to prosecute mislead the only rational or reasonable explanation for that is because it's about it's about race it's about gender it's about age it's about socioeconomics and not about justice as we would hope it would look like it's not about she broke the rules right and we treat everybody the same no, no matter what. No. That's not what this is about. Yeah. There's one other way to get uh, to culpable negligence, which is an intentional violation of a statute that's designed for the protection of human life, which proximately results in injury or death. There's no intentional violation of a statute. She's driving down roads. Yeah, she's just trying to get her, make her way to her grandma, and shit yeah. went terribly wrong, Yeah. And but not criminally wrong. It, there is a GoFundMe for a Daisy Lee. We are hoping that uh, this is over soon and that she doesn't face any adverse additional consequences through this legal system. We are in solidarity with uh, Miss Lee and anybody in North Carolina who's trying to help her. We wish everybody all the best and and hopefully some justice comes out of this thing in a completely tragic situation. So Tuesday, November 6th was the midterm elections, and I just thought we would take a moment since we have the mics in front of us and we have this podcast available to us to just trade some post-election thoughts. A couple things that were criminal justice related came down across the country, but before that, actually, uh, the biggest thing that impacts us is the transition of governorship here in California from Jerry Brown to Gavin Newsom, and I'm hoping that he continues to be on the front lines of criminal justice reform as his predecessor Jerry Brown was. I'm a little nervous because it was almost too good to be true in a lot of ways uh, how much criminal justice reform that Jerry Brown signed into the law, especially in the past two years. Uh, so as I was filling out my ballot, I was just kind of feeling a little sad that Jerry Brown is no longer in office relative to criminal justice reform, but I'm hopeful that Gavin Newsom, the new governor-elect, is going to kind of follow suit. Do you have any thoughts about that transition? I'm feeling optimistic about the direction that the state's going in yeah. on criminal justice issues. A lot of incorrect or outdated, but once politically expedient ideas about how to handle and respond to crime are out and people have kind of revealed that we're doing harm to ourselves when we harm individuals uh, yeah. through this system. And so I'm feeling good about the direction. It's hard to think that somebody could do more work to improve our state from a criminal justice standpoint than Jerry Brown, but I'm feeling yeah, I'm feeling good about it. I wanted to just recommend a a thread on Twitter from a professor named Colin Miller. His handle is Evidence Prof. He did a rundown of how criminal justice reform did throughout the country. Mm. And also the appeal did election night coverage of criminal justice reform around the country. And I found those both to be 
super interesting with lots of links about what the stories were. Obviously, the enfranchisement of people in Florida is a wonderful thing to see. I think that that's part of people's redemption and rehabilitation is being able to participate in their communities through the vote. The law that passed in Florida was to restore voting rights to those convicted of felonies that are not currently in prison or on parole or any sort of supervision. Um, And so it actually prompted me to look up what California's requirements are or rules are. Uh, Folks that have felony convictions in California can vote, um, except those that are currently imprisoned in state or federal prison or are serving a prison sentence in a county jail facility or are on parole. And so Florida apparently was well behind in terms of their uh, voters' laws. And so over a million-plus people now have the right to vote in Florida that previously didn't have the right to vote as of Tuesday. And we can't understate how significant that is, especially what we described earlier in terms of the disproportionate impact that our criminal justice system has on communities of color. And so now you have this mass of people that now are able to vote could be the kind of the start of a sea change in terms of reform in Florida, um, because you have this million plus populace that's now able to vote that previously wasn't. The other thought that I had to relate to that is just uh, what we described earlier in terms of Miss Lee, like the cost that convictions impose on people. Um, you know, th- we are, we take such pounds of flesh from people when they come through the criminal courts, and especially when they're convicted of felonies. Um, their ability to get jobs, their ability to find housing, their ability to get uh, services and benefits, and then stripping them of their right to vote. So I'm hopeful that this change in the law in Florida and, and how much positive coverage it got will be a step forward in terms of trying to reduce or minimize or peel back the collateral consequences of felony convictions. And we're restoring voters' rights, so maybe the next step will be to try to restore housing benefits to those that are convicted of felonies or permitting them the ability to still secure other uh, collateral benefits that might have been stripped away. So I'm hopeful that this is a step in the right direction. The more we do to not isolate people, to bring them into the fold with all of us, the better we're going to do for everybody. Yeah. So it's worthwhile doing for its own sake, and it's also good for society. You know, we know that we get better outcomes in public safety and in rehabilitation when our people have hope and when they're not isolated and when they're not kind of removed. And so... Yeah, reintegrating them into the community fabric, which includes being able to show up to a local ballot box and, you know, get your I Voted sticker and to meet with your local neighbors and community members and vote and feel really connected to your local community. I mean, that that is something that is so significant. One other uh, ballot measure, there's so many, but I'll just uh, mention one other as my, maybe as my thing in our legislative update. In Louisiana, the requirement of unanimous jury verdicts in felony cases. Yeah. I have had clients avoid convictions based on the uh, independent judgment of one individual. A just jury dynamic depends on every single person exercising their individual judgment. That's the thing. It's not about the individual judgment of 10 jurors. Right. It's everybody's individual judgment. And so that's the protection, and that's going to really affect how juries work together. You actually have to hear from people if you can't yeah, you dismiss can't just, them. You can't just ignore the two or the one in the corner and essentially go on without them. 
you know, I, it's just, it boggles the mind sometimes to think that we're, that some of these places across our country, sometimes here in California too, are in the dark ages when it comes to criminal justice and only now in 2018 are we kind of coming into the light. But better late than never, obviously. Louisiana is not known to be a bastion of criminal justice. Uh, so I'm hopeful that this is another step in the right direction for, for those that are ensnared there in the, in the criminal courts in Louisiana to achieve justice. <laughs> 